love those Revelation songs. Because it's a picture, really, of what we're doing here together. Why are we gathering together? To do what we're going to be doing for all eternity. To just sit around the throne and worship Him because He's worthy. To come and sit at His feet and be fed and shepherded by Him through His Word and through His people. And it's just amazing to be able to do that together week after week. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You know, there comes a time in everyone's life when eventually they need to grow up. Unless you're Peter Pan, then you want to stay a boy forever. But no, most of us will have to start cooking our own meals one day, doing our own laundry. We can't always bring that home to mom and dad to do that for us. We'll have to get a job. We'll have to take out the garbage, you know, just do these very, you know, mundane things sometimes in the process of becoming adults. Uh, there's even a term for it that millennials created called adulting. Uh, I learned today that technically I'm a millennial, so I'm trying to reject that knowledge because uh, I always considered myself Generation X. I'm right on the border. I was born in 1981. That's the first year of millennials. Um, I've never had a man bun, though I think if I wish I could have hair that could requ require a man bun. But anyway, so there's this term adulting that millennials will use. Uh, they'll th say things like on Instagram, you know, they'll post like just paid my taxes, hashtag adulting, right? It just gets at this idea and this need that all of us have to eventually we need to grow up. Uh, we need to be responsible. We need to do the things that adults do. We need to leave childish ways behind us. And really, Paul's actually mentioned that a few times in 1 Corinthians, this theme of really what's wrong with this church in Corinth is that they haven't grown up. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Right? He's saying, what's the problem with this church? You're still infants in Christ. You're still on milk. You should be growing up, maturing. Or just a couple weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul said this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Really, if you were to summarize Corinthians, one way to summarize it would be grow up. You're exhibiting all this childlike behavior. And he's going to hit on that theme again here in chapter 14. So let's read verses 20 to 28 of chapter 14. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, 
He is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul is still in this discussion of the gifts, right? The gift of tongues, gift of prophecy, and all these things. But what I really want to do in this passage is sort of zoom out a little bit from the particular issue of the gift of tongues and zoom out really to what has Paul been talking about throughout this letter. I mean, there's been issue after issue that he's brought up. There's issues with communion. There's issues with lawsuits. There's issues with sexual immorality. There's issues with divisions. There's even issues with the gifts. But really, it's not the issue that's the main thing. It's really the motive in the heart that's leading to all of these issues. So that's what we want to talk about really this morning, the motive that's driving all of these things. And at the heart of it, it's this immaturity. Selfish immaturity is driving all of the problems that they see in this church in Corinth. And the real solution then is they need to grow up. They need to be adulting for Christ. And so let me pray and then we'll look at this. Father, we do. We need to grow up. We need to not stay in our childish ways. You saved us for so much more. Even as Tim was encouraging us, you, the, the gate is open. The prison doors are open. You want us to go out and enjoy freedom. You don't want us to remain in prison. You don't want us to remain children. You want us to grow up into our head, who is Christ. You want us individually and us corporately to be a wonderful picture of Christ to the watching world. And so I pray, Lord, that through this passage, even though it's focused on one particular issue, that we'd be able to look out and see that really what it's about is our desire to please you, to mature, to live like our Savior in every way. And that would solve so many of the other issues in our lives. And so speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Christ's name, amen. So adulting for Christ. First, if you want to adult for Christ... You need to serve others over yourself. Serve others over yourself. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Right? This is really Paul's summary of, really, if I were to think of everything wrong with this church in Corinth, I would be this. Your children in your thinking. If you kind of think back to, you know, this whole letter, I mean, think about all the childish things they're exhibiting throughout this letter, right? There's division in chapters one through four. They're allowing their preferences to divide one another, right? This is like kids, you know? Kids will ask, like, what's your favorite cereal? It's like, I like Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops? You like Fruit Loops? What is wrong with you that you like Fruit Loops, right? We can, there's no way we're gonna be able to be friends if you like Fruit Loops. Or like when I was growing up in high school, it was all about the, the music that you listened to. It's like Nickelback? You listen to Nickelback? It's like there is no way that we are going to be friends if you listen to Nickelback. Or one of Rod and I's favorite movies, What About Bob, uh, where Richard Dreyfuss asked Bill Murray, you know, are you married? And he says, no. And he says, would you like to talk about it? And Bill Murray says, there's two kinds of people in this world. 
people that like Neil Diamond and people that don't. My wife, my ex-wife loves Neil Diamond, right? And so that was the thing, the, the preference. If you like Neil Diamond or not, that's going to be a point of division between people. Paul's not saying it's actually wrong to have preferences, to like something better than something else. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But what becomes childish is when you allow those preferences to divide you. Chapter 5, he talks about this church. They're not confronting someone in sin. They're valuing, in one sense, you could say they're valuing grace over truth. And at the end of the day, Paul would say that's childish. To see someone in sin and not lovingly talk to them is childish. Of course, the flip side can also be true that you value truth over grace. I think that's a little bit of what's happening in chapter 6, where they're suing each other. They're demanding justice. To always demand justice and never allow yourself to be wronged. Paul would say that's childish thinking. Chapter 7, there's sexual immorality. There's people, they won't say no to sin. To always say yes to sin is childish. Chapter 7, or chapter 8 rather, they're using their freedoms. And they're not concerned at all about how their freedoms affect other people. And Paul says, to live in a way where you don't care how your actions affect other people, that's childish. Paul in chapter 9 says he's willing to lay down his rights. So the opposite, if I'm not willing to lay down my rights to serve someone, again, that's childlike. That's childish. Chapter 10, there's idolatry. There's people that value things more than God. In addition to that being evil, it's also very childish. Chapter 11, he talks about roles, right? The roles that God designed in the home and in the church. To reject the roles that God has given, that's childish. Chapter 11, they're celebrating communion in such a way that it's all about me. Who cares about these other people? To worship in a way that's all about you and not care about other people is childish. Chapter 12, talking about spiritual gifts. Two opposite errors you could have here. Because you might think, I don't need the body of Christ. And Paul would say, that is incredibly childish. On the other extreme, you could say, well, the body of Christ doesn't really need me. I'm insignificant. Paul would likewise say, that is childish. These are all childish ways of thinking. Everything's about me. It's that immature, childish attitude that life revolves around me. And as you look over your life, as I look over my life, what areas of childishness do you see? Am I unwilling to give things to the Lord? I'm holding on to them like a little kid saying, no, mine. Like, you can't have these. These are mine. Am I preferring one group of people and alienating another? Our kids are really into Calvin and Hobbes these days, which I'm glad about. Uh, but there's always, you know, Calvin and Hobbes playing in the treehouse, and Susie wants to play, but there's a sign on the door that says, no girls allowed. Is that how we are? That we only prefer to be with one group of people, and everybody else is not allowed to get into our group? Do we cut people out of our lives? Are we unwilling to budge? Do we hold grudges? Are we being childish in our thinking? Now, Paul does say, if you want to be childish, I'll give you an area where you can be childish. Look at verse 20. You want to be a baby? Be an infant in evil, right? If there's one area of your life where you want to remain uninitiated and have inexperience, it's evil. 
be inexperienced, be a baby in evil. But of course, this is the opposite of the Corinthians, right? They're maturing in evil. I mean, Paul preached the gospel to them. They were saved because of Paul's ministry. Now they're turning on the one that God used to save them. So they're they're actually growing in evil. In chapter five, it says they tolerate sin that is not tolerated even among pagans. Like you are excelling in evil. You are mature as it relates to evil things. Chapter six, you're suing even your own brothers. It's like sometimes the world doesn't even do that. But again, you're excelling in evil. So where you should be adults, you're children. And where you should be children, you're growing. So what's the remedy? Verse 20. But in your thinking, be mature. Right? If childishness is self-centeredness, me first, I don't care whose toes I get, get stepped on, you mess with me, you're going to pay, forget you. If that's childishness, then what's maturity? You first, not me first. Others, not myself. That's maturity. That's what Paul's calling us to. Grow up. Value others more than yourself. Think back over the issues of 1 Corinthians. Rather than division, what should you do? What's maturity? Unity. Where you can love someone even if they have a different preference than you. When it comes to sin, you don't excuse it. You actually confront it in love. That's maturity. You don't demand justice. You actually are willing to be wronged for the sake of somebody else. You don't indulge in sin, but you say no to sin. You don't demand your freedoms and your rights. You're willing to lay them down to serve one another. That's being an adult. That's growing up. You value one another's roles and gifts. In other words, you love. That's where 1 Corinthians 13 is like this great encouragement. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, I think it's interesting, you know, we associate 1 Corinthians 13 with weddings, and that's fine. But really, it's this rebuke of the Corinthians, like, you're not doing this. This is the opposite of what you're doing. You're acting like children. Instead, you should be acting like adults and loving one another. You know, there's nothing wrong with reading this at a wedding, but this doesn't represent the highest form of love that is only shared between a husband and a wife. This actually represents the highest form of love that you're supposed to share with everyone, even your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. He's calling them to love. He's calling them to maturity. He's calling them to grow up. So what does maturity look like? Look at chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Be patient, not impatient. Be kind, not mean. Love doesn't envy or boast. Stop envying other people. Rejoice when good things happen to others. Don't get jealous. Love is not arrogant or rude. Instead, you should be humble. Be respectful. It does not insist on its own way. Stop insisting on your own way. Make it your life's desire to have other people have their way, not you have your way says love is not irritable or resentful that word resentful literally is keeping a record of wrongs stop keeping a record of wrongs keep short accounts 
Be long-suffering. Be quick to forgive. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. You should bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Don't let anything get in the way of you preferring other people over yourself. Love. Or in other words, be like Christ. That's how he was to you. He was forgiving. He was merciful. He was kind. He was patient. He was willing to be wronged for your sake. Childish thinking begins when you start to focus on anything other than Christ. Think about this. Some family member offends you. Don't know what it is. Whatever it is, they offend you in some way. You have a choice. You can think about the offense or you can think about Jesus. And that's the way, the choice you make in that moment is going to change your life. If you choose to focus on the offense, you're going to get bitter, resentful, You'll plot your revenge. You'll look for ways to alienate this family member. You'll burn bridges. You're going to be a child. You're going to have relationships like children have relationships. But what happens if you focus on Christ? How did he treat me when I sinned against him? Now, he didn't wipe the sin under the rug and pretend it's not there, right? He doesn't do that. What did he do, though? He exposed my sin in love. He showed me the true condition of my heart, but he did it out of love. And then how did he deal with my sin? He took it on himself. He didn't say, I demand that you pay for this sin. No, he said, I'm going to take that. I'll pay it. You put it on my account, and I'll go to the cross, and I will bear your sin so that you don't have to, and so that we can have a reconciled relationship. And that's, that's the choice you have every single day. Am I going to focus on Christ or am I going to focus on something else? Am I going to end up living like a child or being an adult? It's like, do you want to protect yourself from childish ways? Then spend every day of your life meditating on what Christ has done for you. And you can't help but mature if you do that. It's like, what do we typically meditate on? The slights at work, friction at home, stress at school, and how does that generally work out for us? We end up behaving like children, right? Retaliating when something doesn't go in our way, stomping our feet in frustration that things don't go the way that I want. What if we meditated on Christ instead? His mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his patience, his love. Mature thinking starts with focusing on Christ. And it always overflows into preferring others over yourself. And this is what Paul's getting at when he tells them, you are the body of Christ. Like, I mean, we're a, we're a, a culture that likes privacy. Paul's basically saying, like, as Christians, we should want no privacy. We should want every single person in our lives and around the world looking at us. Because we're the body of Christ. We're supposed to be a picture to the watching world. What is Christ like? My life should be an open book. Look at my life. I want you to see what Christ is like. I want to be able to look in this church and see forgiveness and patience and kindness. I want the world to see us. We don't need privacy if we're living like him. 
So individually and corporately, we represent Christ to one another in the world. Do you feel the weight of that? On the one hand, it's a great responsibility. And like Paul, we might say, well, who's adequate for these things? But on the other hand, it's an incredible privilege. We get to be a picture of Christ to the world. What Christ has done for us should melt us. And we should want to be like him. Christians should want to be like Jesus. But what happens? We allow bitterness, unforgiveness, keeping a record of wrongs, cutting people out of our life. That's what we allow to control us rather than focusing on Christ. So when you start to see childish behaviors crop up in your life, think about Jesus. When you're tempted towards bitterness or unforgiveness, I mean, think about Christ on the cross. Being murdered, nailed to a cross. And what are the words on his lips? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or meditate on Romans 5. When did Christ die for us? It says when we were weak. When we were sinners, he died for us. When we were his enemies, he died for us. And that'll change you. That will transform you because you'll want to be like him. The next time you're impatient or frustrated with people, think how long-suffering has Christ been with me? Not just when I wasn't a believer, that's incredibly long-suffering, but maybe even more so now. Now that I know him, how long-suffering is he still with me? When I know exactly what I'm doing, and I know exactly who I'm doing it against, and he still wants to fellowship with me. Or if you're jealous or insecure about other people's gifts in the church, think it's no accident that, that we're in this church together. I don't have to be jealous. I don't have to be insecure of anyone. Christ poured out his blood for this other brother or sister and put us both into this church for a good reason. There's no, I don't have to be insecure. He's got a place for all of us. And so we, are we adulting for Christ? Are we valuing other people more than ourselves? Are you acting like a child or a grown-up? Are you valuing and preferring yourself or are you serving others? And again, if you find yourself regularly annoyed, disappointed, and frustrated with people, the solution is not try harder, do better. The solution is look back to your Savior. And it'll change you. I remember in the Timothy Fellowship one night, one of the guys asked me, like, you know, is it sort of like, you know, your personality to, like, be up in front of people and to talk to people and everything else? And I think they wanted the answer to be yes. Like, that's, like, my natural, gregarious personality of being in front of people. Am I like, and I told them, it's my worst nightmare. Like, if you asked me when I was a kid, what was, like, the last thing you'd ever want to do with your life? Like, to be up in front of people in any way. To have to be outgoing. Right? Rhonda says that she thought she was an introvert until she met me. Then she really learned what an introvert is. But it's like, it's not my personality. I'm like the kid who wants to hide behind mom and dad's legs, right? And I don't want to interact. And yet, what did Christ do? He changes people. I mean, we make so many excuses and we chalk them up to personality. Oh, it's not my personality to do that. Oh, it's just not in my nature to do that. Well, Christ can change your nature. And how does he do it? He doesn't do it just by like, you do it because I said so. 
No, how did Christ change me? It's like I look at Christ and I'm like, how could I continue to be the person I was? I mean, he's so outgoing. He's so loving. All he wants to do is serve. He doesn't care about himself in that way. How could I not want to be like him? How can I say that I love him and remain the way that I am? If I love him, I want to be like him. And that's what he does. And I, again, I don't say, I, please don't misunderstand me. I don't say this at all to toot my own horn. All I do it to say is Christ can change a person. And he does it when you fall in love with him, you change. Because you want to be like him. I mean, think about Paul. He was a murderer. He murdered Christians. It's not in my personality, you know, to love Christians. Like, no, what did God, Christ changed him. He changed him so radically to the point where he could say later in his life, Paul says this, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Do you realize what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I wish, I wish I had the option to go to hell forever if it meant that my people would be saved. Where did Paul learn that? Where did Paul learn the idea that I wish one could die so that many could be saved? He loved Christ. I mean, he just looked at him and he thought like, I want my life to be a picture of his life. I mean, even to the point where if I could cut myself off from him, if it meant salvation, I would do it. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Become an adult. Learn to value others more than yourself, just like Christ did for you. Now, secondly, part two, how do you adult for Christ? You learn to value Scripture over experience. You value what God says over how you feel, or what you think, or what your experience is. And now we'll sort of jump back into 1 Corinthians 14. As he begins talking about this issue of tongues, there's all these people using the gift of tongues, but they're not using it in the way that God designed. And so what's Paul's answer? He goes back to Scripture in verse 21. It is written. That's really how Paul deals with almost every problem that ever comes up in a church, right? It is written. That's how Jesus answered all the questions in his ministry. It is written. Have you not read? Right? People say, like, well, what about this? What about this? What's the trump card? It is written. Scripture trumps my experience. And so that's what he does. And you can think about it this way, right? Childishness. What is childishness? It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. It's saying, I am the ultimate authority. My experience matters more than anything else. Me over Scripture. That's childishness, right? This is the essence of teenagers, right? I know better than mom and dad. They don't understand I know. I've experienced. This is what I know. That trumps everything else. And Paul's saying, no, if you want to be an adult in Christ, Scripture trumps everything else. And now he's going to address this particular issue of tongues. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So again, what's the issue? People are using the gift of tongues in all these crazy ways, and it's not edifying. 
And Paul's essentially going to say, this isn't how God designed it. He goes back to Scripture. Isaiah 28 is the reference. You don't have to turn there, but actually turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 49. This is, you know, at the end of these first five books of the Bible, there are people about to enter the promised land, and God's giving them, really, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to live. Here's the things you should live by. And then at the end, he says, if you live by them, here are all the wonderful things that are going to happen. But then he says, if you don't live by them, here's all the bad things that are going to happen. And part of that, if you continue to resist the Lord, this is what happens in verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. Right? God's saying, if you continue to rebel, if you continue not to listen to me, what's going to happen? I'm going to bring another nation in to judge you. And they're going to be speaking a language that you don't understand. And that's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 28. Basically, the idea is, well, you haven't listened to me in the language you could understand, so I'm going to bring another nation in, and it's going to speak another, a language that you don't understand. So, in that context, is hearing a language you don't understand a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right? Does hearing a language you don't understand, does it mean you're close to God or away from God? Away. You're distant from God. You're not listening to God. That's why you're hearing a la another language. It's a sign of what? Judgment. Judgment is coming. When you hear a language you don't understand, that's a sign of judgment. Right? And that's what he says back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Thus tongues, and in this case, not untranslated tongues, are a sign of judgment, not for believers, they don't have anything to worry about, but who are they a sign of judgment to? Unbelievers. If you're not listening, if you're an unbeliever, you're not listening to God, and now you start hearing things that are not in your language, trouble's coming. And what does he say after that, though? Prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Prophecy is the things you can understand. That's intended for believers to hear things, to grow, to hear from God, and to grow. So, now as we circle back, so what's he saying? The way that you're practicing tongues right now, everyone just talking, no one understanding anything that's going on, that's not what Scripture says. This is not my argument. Do you see that? This is Paul's argument, right? I'm not up here trying to argue for or against tongues. I'm just, this is what Paul says. The way that they're practicing tongues in Corinth is not in aligned with Scripture. And that's Paul's thing. If you want to be an adult, you go with what Scripture says. You don't go with what your experience says. And he says, if you're hearing languages you don't understand, that's a sign of your distance from God. Which is incredibly ironic. Because in the Corinthian church, what was the gift that they wanted more than anything else? Tongues. And they thought, oh, I'm so close to God. I'm speaking in tongues. And Paul says, actually, the opposite is true. If you're speaking in a language you don't understand, it actually means judgment's coming and you're far from God. And it's very, I mean, it's interesting today, right, that in many circles today, people think speaking in tongues is this great gift that I'm close to God. And Paul's saying, Scripture tells us 
Again, not me, not my opinion, but Scripture says if you're hearing languages you don't understand, that's not a sign that you're close to God. That's a sign you're afar from God. And so what's the solution? If you start hearing that, you need to repent. You might say, but I feel so spiritual when I speak in tongues. I feel close to God when I speak in tongues. Well, Scripture says this. So are you going to believe your experience or are you going to believe what Scripture says? Are you going to be a child and focus on your experience or are you going to be an adult and focus on Scripture? Again, not my argument. That's Paul's argument. And there's ramifications for this. Look at the ramifications in verses 23 to 25 depending on if you value Scripture or experience. Verse 23, this is if you put experience over what Scripture says and you keep doing what you're doing as it relates to tongues, this is what Paul says is going to happen. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And then what? Then they'll leave and they'll never come back. And if they never respond to the gospel, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be judged forever. Paul says if you value experience over scripture, it can lead to someone's eternal judgment. When it should be a caught, when an unbeliever comes, it should be an opportunity for them to hear about salvation. And they're coming in, they're just hearing all these things that they don't understand, and they leave and they stay in judgment apart from God. Now, of course, the opposite is if you value scripture over experience, then salvation can happen. Look what he says in 24. But if all prophesy, instead of all speaking in tongues that no one can understand, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, what happens? He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is really among you. I mean, do you see? I mean, think about that. When you're speaking in a language that everybody understands, and you're telling people the gospel, what's going to happen? People are going to get convicted of their sin. They're going to realize they're accountable to God. And I have no way of paying off that debt. And then they're going to hear about Christ, and they're going to fall on their face in worship and say, God is really among you. Why? Because we put scripture over experience. And we did what God says rather than just what we wanted to do. The mark of adulting for Christ is that I trust Scripture more than my experience. Now, I think most of us would probably say, well, yeah, of course. Of course I value Scripture over my experience, right? I believe that God, what God says about creation. I believe what he says about homosexuality, about marriage. I even believe what God says about gender and the roles in the home and in the church. But do we really trust what Scripture says over our experience when it comes to day-to-day, day-in, day-out, real-life situations. We did a parenting seminar, series of seminars, a couple weeks back. And one of the issues where we had to really think about as parents, do we trust Scripture or do we trust our experience was when it came to the area of disciplining our kids. Because we'll say things like this, I love my child too much to discipline them. God says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So am I going to go with my experience or am I going to go with what God says? 
Or we'll say things like this, if I discipline my child, he won't like me. Proverbs 29 says this, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So I say, if I discipline, it'll make a worse relationship. God says, no, if you discipline, it means a better relationship. So are you trusting your experience or are you trusting scripture? We might say things like, well, if I discipline my child, it'll drive him away from God. Proverbs 23 says, don't withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So my experience says, no, this will drive him from God. God says, no, it'll actually drive him to me. So do we value our experience or do we value scripture? How about this? How about seeing a brother or sister in sin? We think, well, if I offended them, they should come to me. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. So my experience says, oh no, they should come to me if they're offended. Jesus says, no, you go to them. How about if the situation was reversed? Someone offends you. Well, they need to come to me. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So do I value my experience, or do I value what Jesus says? Or if you just see anybody in sin, it's not, effect, not related to you directly, you say, oh, well, someone else will talk to them. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore in a spirit of gentleness. So I'm just challenging us in my own heart where we might say I value scripture over my experience, but then in these very real life situations, we're quick to say, well, maybe not like that. But being a true adult in Christ is I trust what God says more than what I think. I trust what God says more than what I feel. I trust what God says even more than my experience. And that's what adulting for Christ looks like. I trust God's word over my experience. And Christ is our great example in that as well. I mean, you think about the temptation of Christ. Satan's tempting him with all these things. What does he do? It is written. So Christ himself, how did he overcome sin? I go with what is written over my experience or the temptation that's in front of me. He says anything else is childish. So now Paul wants to apply that to this situation of tongues, practice of tongues, and he does that in verses 26 to 28. And I think you're going to see both aspects, preferring others and valuing what God says over our experience. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So there's all these gifts that you all have. Let all things be done for building up, right? What's the issue? I want everyone to be encouraged. I want everyone to be built up. It's not about me expressing my gift because that's what I want to do. No, it's about everyone else being built up. I come to our gatherings not thinking about myself. I come to our gatherings thinking, how can I build someone else up? How can I encourage someone? How can I see them loving Christ more? It's not about me. 
And then he gives very practical instructions in verse 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So, I mean, super practical, right? I mean, let's say there's 20 people that want to use the gift of tongues that particular Sunday. What does he say? We don't need 20, because there's a lot of other gifts in this body. So maybe we'll have two or three, but the rest, you're going to have to just use your gift another time or choose not to use it today. So what, again, I'm preferring others. I don't have to use my gift. I'll let other people use their gifts because it's not about me. It's about everyone being built up. Again, very practical in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God right? What's he doing? He's applying scripture over experience. So you might say, like, well, I have the gift of tongues. I want to use it. It's like, do you have an interpreter? No. Well, then that's not a sign of a good thing. That's a sign of a bad thing. So we're not going to have that gift on display right now, right? I mean, just very practical. People over yourself, scripture over experience. Now, incidentally, you do actually learn a couple interesting things from these verses, One is this, there may be times when you don't get to exercise your gift out of preference for other people exercising their gifts. Right? What if you're person number four with the gift of tongues, you're in line, but we only take two or three. So there's going to be times when you just don't get to use your gift out of preference for other people using theirs. There's also times when you don't get to exercise your gift because of God-ordained circumstances. Let's say you had the gift of tongues here. If there's no interpreter... You don't get to use your gift in the assembly. Like God sometimes will put you in a situation where you don't get to use the gift that you want. So what should our response be in those circumstances? Look for other ways to serve. You can build people up in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be specifically related to your spiritual gift. Look for other ways to serve and build people up and trust that the Lord will open up the doors when he wants to open them up. But this is what adulting for Christ looks like. I value people over myself. I value scripture over my experience. Now, when we millennials use the term adulting, it usually has sort of a negative connotation, right? Like it's, I don't really want to do this, but because I'm an adult, I'll sort of, I'll do it, right? I don't really want to file my taxes. I don't really want to get car insurance. I don't really want to do my own laundry, but I'm willing to do it because, hey, that's what adults do. Adulting for Christ is not like that. It's not drudgery. It's like, uh, I, I don't want to prefer others, but because Jesus asked me to, I will. Or I don't really want to value what God says over my experience, but I will, because that's what I'm supposed to do. No. Like, living for others, adulting for Christ, is actually what brings true joy to your life. When you're able to say, like, I don't care about myself anymore, I want to build up others, you'll find a life of way more joy than you would ever have living for yourself. When you say, I'm going to value what God says even more than what I feel and experience, that's going to be a life of way more joy than you being the ultimate authority over everything in your life. Because again, it's a life focused on Christ. It's a life where you're waking up every day thinking, Jesus, you laid aside your rights for me. And you're like, I can't wait to do that for somebody else because you did it for me. Jesus, you served me instead of serving yourself. Would you let me do that today? 
Would you let me be a picture of Christ to someone today where I get to lay down my rights and I get to serve them instead of them serving me? Because it would be my great delight to imitate you, my Savior. Jesus, you showed me the supreme value of God's word. Would you help me to value it today, even more than what I think and what I feel? Jesus, you're always building people up. Would you help me to build people up? Your life will change. When you, be, when you grow up, when you become an adult in Christ, your life will be full of joy and peace. God will use you in incredible ways if you decide that other people are more important than yourself and scripture is more important than what I feel. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are children many times. We get caught up in things, we want things to go our way. Think about this even as it relates to parenting, how we'll have a child get frustrated that they don't get their way, and then I get frustrated because the child's getting frustrated. And we're both doing the same thing. We're stomping our feet at you and about our circumstances rather than acknowledging that, no, life's not about us. And it's a good thing that it's not about us. It's about your son. And we get to spend our lives just basking in his glory. And as we do that, we transform into his image. I mean, forget responsibility. What greater privilege is that? To be those that you saved. And how did we get saved? You opened our eyes to see the glory of your Son. And how do you change us? You open our eyes to see the glory of your Son. And as we see him day after day, he changes us to be like him. Would you do that? And in these two particular ways, maybe even this week, that we'd learn to value others more than ourselves, that we'd be quick to forgive, that we'd be merciful, gracious, patient, that when we see someone in sin, we're not primarily concerned about the offense to me, but we're concerned about their soul, and that we go towards them like you came to us. And may we learn to value what your word says, even over our experience and our thoughts. Again, these are hard things to do. We wake up every morning just with thoughts in our own mind, and may we submit them to what your scripture says. And a lot of times it's submitting them to the thoughts that in our minds we're thinking we're nothing, we're nobodies, we're no use to anyone. And we can remind ourselves, no, we're children of the king. And he laid, and Christ laid down his life for us. And we're different now. The old me is dead. There's a new me. And there's Christ living in me. So may we believe those things even more than what we feel. And may we see great fruit as a result, both individually and as a church. Do great things. Continue to do great things through Valley Bible Church. I pray that we have our best years still ahead. And that you would be pleased to use us for years and years and years to come until you, you return. What a joy it is to be your people. Encourage us today. In Christ's name, amen.